You're listening to sermons from South Point Fellowship, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpointfellowship.org. Go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to both Matthew chapter 1 and Genesis 38. It's the first Sunday as I said at the beginning this morning of Advent. And if you're unfamiliar with that word, you haven't spent uh, time in a a circle uh, that uses that term, um, it comes from the Latin word uh, that just means coming. It's, It's the season throughout church history that has anticipated the coming of Christ to earth. It's, it's a season that ultimately focuses on waiting. While the Israelites awaited the coming of Messiah in the flesh, we await, as Christians now, the coming of the Messiah in glory. I'd encourage you personally, individually, and as a family to set aside some time each day this season to focus on that very waiting Uh, Read a a Bible passage that talks about the coming of Christ. Read a Bible passage that talks about the second coming of Christ or find some Advent devotional that might help you walk through those things. There is built-in wonder in this very season. Uh, It comes with lots of anticipation, lots of energy, and so would we as God's people center that very energy and anticipation on Christ Jesus himself? Our first text this morning begins to show us how all of it is centered on Christ. Every bit of the Bible is either looking to the coming of Christ, uh, the first time onto this earth to live and dwell among us, or it is looking to Christ and his return. Let's center this season of waiting, of Advent, the coming of Christ on Christ Himself. Now, our first text this morning begins to show us how it all is centered on Christ. Matthew chapter 1. If you're in there with me, would you go ahead and stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? It's going to be very quick. We'll read just through a little bit of verse 3. Matthew chapter 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I stopped there because that's who we're focusing on this morning as as we look to uh, this very picture about Jesus Christ and his coming. We're going to look at Genesis chapter 38, the story of Tamar. Now, let's be honest. If you've ever sat down to read any sort of of the Bible and you come across a genealogy, uh, we are all, okay, 98% of us are tempted to skip the genealogy. There's just a couple of you in this room who are like, give me the genealogies. But by and large, we just kind of glaze over them. Any, anybody else? Anybody else with me? Okay, a couple of you brave souls. Uh, we just skip over those genealogies. Th- this particular genealogy, though, along with the one in the Gospel of Luke, is, is building that of Jesus Christ himself. Where, where does Jesus Christ come from? What, what is his lineage? And as we'll do this this morning through Genesis 38, if you go back 
and you look at the stories of each individual that are found in the lineage of Christ Jesus, you'll find some rather surprising things. And as we'll see in Genesis 38, uh, some of those things are going to be rather shocking. And so that is why we provided uh, an opportunity for some of your children uh, to go and, and participate in an in a age-graded environment. Uh, but nevertheless, I'm going to be as, as PC as I possibly can, but knowing that this is God's word. And as 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us that it is good for us in its entirety. It's profitable for us. It's, it's good for us in training in righteousness for rebuking and reproof. Matthew includes in his genealogy something that is kept from most other genealogies, if not all, in the ancient Near Eastern cultures, and that is women. Matthew chapter 1 records five women in this particular genealogy. And so we're going to look at, uh, we're going to look at those women over the next four weeks, ending on Mary on Christmas Eve. And while it's already out of the norm to mention women at all, these aren't even the women that we would expect to be recorded. You, you would have expected the matriarchs, Rebecca, Sarah, perhaps Leah, but Matthew chooses different women. We get Tamar, Bathsheba, and Ruth. These are the kinds of stories that we would hide from our families. Um, some, some of these stories are incredibly shameful, hoping that no one would ever find them out. Th these are the kinds of stories that you dread going to Thanksgiving dinners for, that, that nobody in the room is going to bring these particular stories up. And yet, these are the women that are included in the God-inspired Bible that you and I hold in our hands. He breathed out these words so that we could know him and that we could understand his purposes throughout the world, his redemptive purposes especially. And these are the women through which he brought forth the redeemer of the world. And just a side note, as we get into Genesis chapter 38, this is one of the things that brings me great hope in the inspiration, the, the clarity, and then the inerrancy of the scriptures that if it was a fictitious story, if it was something that was made up by humans alone, they certainly wouldn't recorded such a, such a story, right? And so uh, we'll get in. As we look at Genesis 38, the story of Tamar this morning, may we remember that God providentially rules over all things to fulfill his purposes and promises to his people. We've divided this story into three parts. Now, this is a narrative that we're going to look through this morning. So I'm going to do a lot of uh, recapping, a storytelling as we look throughout this very chapter. And I'm going, to, I'm going to pull out particular parts, but we've divided it into three parts. The problem, the plan, and then some application. The to the end of Genesis chapter 50, which is the end of Genesis, tells the story of, anybody know? Joseph. It tells the story of Joseph. Now, as we read just a moment ago in Matthew chapter 1, Joseph is a descendant of Abraham. Abraham, if you don't know, he is the one that God promised he would bless the entire world through. He was going to make him, Abraham, the father of a great nation. And so what you have is the line of Abraham. Abraham, who fathers Isaac, who fathers Jacob, and Jacob has how many sons? Twelve sons. One of those sons is, thank you, one of those sons is Joseph, and another in particular to chapter 38 is Judah. 
Judah was the fourth son, and Judah was extremely wicked. Now, a few things tell us that he was extremely wicked. First, when the brothers decided that they were going to kill their brother Joseph, here's what happens. Judah, he speaks up and he says, hey, we're not going to kill our brother, although we're going to let our dad think that he's dead. We're going to let him think that he was murdered by an animal. We're actually going to sell him because what, what good would it do if we just killed him? We might as well make money off of our brother. Second, oh, by the way, that is really wicked, okay? That, that's, that's one indicator that we know that Judah is a very wicked man. Second, at the beginning of chapter 38, the story shifts for this chapter only off of Joseph, and it focuses in on Judah himself. So second, chapter 38, verse 1 says, It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brother's, and he turned aside to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. Now, this guy is going to show up later in the story again, and it just seems like he's a no good, bad influence of a friend. So he, he turns aside from his brothers to a certain Adolamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite woman whose name was Shua. Now, at first glance, that doesn't seem to be wicked in of itself, but we need more context. We've already seen, if you were to read Genesis up until this point, you would have seen at least a few references already uh, that God has said, and he's commanded, in fact, not to marry any Canaanite women. Now, it's not that God is a racist God. No, it is a worship issue that he's given that command. God said, my people, the Israelites, are to be set apart. They're to worship me alone. The rest of the world, all of the other nations, they worship false gods. They worship pagan idols. God doesn't want to be mocked. He wants to be and deserves to be worshiped alone. And so he says, do not take for yourself a Canaanite woman. But what does Judah do? He takes for himself a Canaanite woman Judah, as you'll see multiple times in this story, disregards the commands of God for his own pleasure. It keeps recurring in this story. He'll teach his sons to do the same, as we'll see in just a moment. So Judah, there in the text, has three sons with his wife, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Judah finds his firstborn, Ur, a wife, and her name is Tamar, Okay. That's the woman in Matthew chapter 1 that's part of the lineage of Jesus Christ, and she is the focus of our text this morning. Now, just another side point. Marriage is always a revealing thing. Uh, for those of you who are uh, anticipating marriage, for those of you who are married, uh, you know that it is a revealing thing. It always has a way of exposing who you really are. One of my all-time favorite books is called When Sinners Say I Do by a guy named Dave Harvey, and its premise is in the title. It's not just, as some of us would like to think, one sinner being in relationship with a, an otherwise perfect person, although some of you would like to think that, right? Yet my spouse is the sinner, and I am otherwise pretty, pretty perfect, right? That's usually why arguments happen in marriage because one of us are thinking that we're perfect and the other is a sinner. But, uh, but would you have it? Marriage is actually with two sinful people coming together to serve God together. 
two sinners. It's two sinners joining in holy matrimony with one another, two sinners who are sharing life together. It is absolutely revealing. And it has the potential, hear this, as God designed it to, to reflect his gospel, to display his undeserving love and mercy in the midst of the sin of one another or or both, but it also has this dark side. Marriage, for those of you who are in it, for those of you who have been in it, you know that marriage also has this potential to be quite destructive. When two sinners enter into a covenant of marriage with no desire to honor God or a desire to honor God in word only, that they would say, hey, we've entered into this covenant of holy matrimony and we desire to be with one another no matter what, and yet you've only decided to to participate that in word only. It's also destructive. And so it's interesting. When as soon as Ur takes Tamar to be his wife, verse 6 The next verse says that Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Now, he doesn't say that, just just to point this out, he doesn't say that before they're married, but rather after they're married because marriage is revealing. It's exposing. It exposes the sin of two people. And he says, Judah's firstborn was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. That's it. That's what we have of Ur. Okay. We have nothing more to go on. He, he was wicked and the Lord puts him to death. Some of you may realize in that moment, just that by that little verse, how much of a string of mercy from God that you've been given in your marriage, right? That you've been incredibly wicked or you've been destructive in your sin patterns and it is only by the mercy of God that he has not also put you to death because you too would be dead if it were not for his mercy. That's an invitation just right there in the text as we get into chapter 38 to repent this morning by the help of the Holy Spirit. Anyways, back to Tamar. She's in a tough spot. Thankfully, she isn't married to a wicked man any longer, but she has nothing. Now, For her, this is a really good thing. There is a practice in that day called leveret marriage, another word from the the Latin meaning husband's brother, okay? So this gets a little strange, but remember, this is a practice of this day, okay? It's completely normal. In fact, it's, it's used by God in this time. In Tamar's day, when a woman's husband dies before she has produced an heir of her own, her husband's brother would take over the responsibilities to produce an heir and care for this very woman. And so this is what is commanded to do by Onan. Okay, Onan, you're supposed to take your brother's wife as your wife, and you're supposed to take on his responsibilities, and you have the responsibility to produce an heir and to continue her line. Judah tells his son Onan to, in verse 8, you can read the entirety on your own, But he says, perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan didn't like that plan. He, He knew that the offspring wouldn't be his in a sense. He knew that the inheritance of his brother would not go to him if he had a child with Tamar. And so Onan kept Tamar from getting pregnant. That's how wicked this brother is as well. 
Again, just like his dad, Onan disregards the commands of God for his own pleasure. Look at verse 10 with me. And what he, Onan, did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Okay? So you better not mess with Tamar, (laughs) and you better not disregard the commands of God, or in this story, God will put you to death. If you're wicked, God puts you to death. And Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. Tamar now has Judah's word. When his son Shelah comes of marrying age, he will then marry Tamar. Until then, she needs to put on the clothes of widowhood and remain at her father's house. Now, when I read this, perhaps when you read this, we have too tame of a picture in this moment, okay? It, it is terrible. It is absolutely terrible that she lost two husbands in, in a small span of time, it seems, but she's ultimately okay. She's going to go live with her father, and everything is going to be all right. She has this promise to marry Shelah, the third son, in the future, but in this day and time, Tamar has absolutely nothing, when, when Judah says, hey, you need to put on the garments of widowhood and go back to the house of your father, he is, at, he is actually prescribing to her a, a life of destitution, at least until they marry, if they ever do, and we'll see what happens in just a moment in the story. But he's saying to her, I don't care about you. I don't care about the provision that I promised to you. Go, go back to your dad's house. Maybe he can help you. She's the lowest of society now without a husband. There are no social programs to care for this woman. Her her parents have been expecting her to marry and remain married. They have nothing for her. She has no inheritance from having a husband and producing a child, and she has no long-term care. This woman, Tamar, can't just go to college and start a new career and provide for herself that way. She's done, not to mention Judah, although he said he would give Shelah to her in marriage, is terrified, thinking that it was Tamar who poisoned her, his sons. I don't know. He's like, my, my, my last third son isn't going to live and marry this woman. And because he's scared, he's keeping her from the provision that he promised when he gave her to his first son. Judah doesn't care about Tamar. He cares about his own self. He cares about his own needs. He cares about his own line. And he continues, again, to disregard the commands of God for his own pleasure. Verse 12, look there in the text with me. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend, Hira, the Adolamite. So Judah is on his way up to Timnah for sheep shearing time. That's explicitly in the text. Now, what's not in the text is what the sheep shearing time is. So we'll have to, we'll have to get some broader history for that. It, it isn't as dull as it sounds, okay? Uh, I've never been a part of sheep shearing ever, and perhaps you have or you have not, but I guarantee you, or at least I hope I guarantee you, uh, that whatever the sheep shearing that you've done in this life was not like the sheep shearing that Judah was going to participate in. It's like the Mardi Gras of the ancient Near East. It's, it's a lot of partying. There, there is a lot of uh, immorality going on at the sheep shearing time. Lots of chances to engage in practices that you ought not engage in. 
And so Judah goes up knowing exactly what he's getting into. So that is the first part of the story. Now, beginning in verse 13, we have the plan. Look at verse 13 with me. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, here's what she did. She took off her widow's garments, and she covered herself with something else. She covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to a name, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw, for she saw, can't say that. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given into marriage according to Leveret marriage by Judah to Shelah when he was of age. But in fact, Judah's actually been holding out on her, keeping her from a child, withholding provision from her. And she realizes in this moment when she sees that Shelah is of age, that Judah has no intentions of seeing the two married. And so she decides to take matters into her own hands. Now, this is Tamar's culture. She knows the Canaanite ways. She knows everything that the sheep shearing is about. She knows that there's all kinds of sexual immorality here. The, the Canaanites actually believed that engaging in some of this in temple worship brought about a more fertile crop, a, a more fertile flock. And Tamar knows the culture that Judah has given himself too now, that he's disregarded the commands of God for his own self-pleasure, that he's come away from what God has instructed him to do, and he's given himself to a Canaanite woman. He's participating in the wickedness of this land, and Tamar knows that, and she knows more than that. She knows just the kind of man that her father-in-law is. You, you see, Judah is just like his sons. The apples don't fall too far from the tree. Judah has already broken the commandment of God not to intermingle with the world, especially in regards to marriage. It has devastating effects on life and worship for the pe people of God. In fact, intermingling with the world always does. Now, what Tamar is about to do is not commanded here or commented on here by the author of Genesis, Moses. In fact, we could read chapter 38 in its entirety and wonder, is this even wrong? Is this seen as a sinful act by Tamar? But if we read in to chapter 39 this morning, we would find out that Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he writes, knows and thinks that it is. When writing about Potiphar's wife, Joseph actually accepts imprisonment and banishment for years in order to, to stay clear and free from sexual immorality, even a hint of it. Tamar should have relied and waited on God's provision, but she decided to take matters into her own hands. Nevertheless, Tamar disguises herself and she meets Judah on his way to the sheep shearing. Now, Judah doesn't realize that he's being tricked by Tamar, his daughter-in-law. And just before they enter into an adulterous action, Tamar says, hang on. Before this happens, what are you going to give me? Judah says in verse 17, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And Tamar says, well, how do I know you will actually send it? After all, Tamar knows 
the kind of guy that she's dealing with in this moment, that he never follows through on his word. She asks for his signet and cord and staff, the scripture says. And so if you and I were to relate this into modern day terms, Judah essentially hands over his driver's license, he hands over his credit card, and he hands her his social security number. He says, here's my ID. This is my identity. You have everything on me with these three things. This is it. This is who I am. This is how you know you have my word. And so they engage in sexual immorality, and then they part ways. Now, Judah sends his friend, the Adolamite, that guy who keeps popping up throughout the story, and he takes the goat to go and find the cult prostitute so he could keep good on his word, surprisingly. Like, this is the time that you're going to keep good on your word, probably so he could get his identification back, probably so that he wouldn't be made a mockery of in the town. But when the Adolamite goes into the town, he doesn't see the prostitute. He sees no one that is wearing anything like a prostitute would wear. And so he starts to ask some of the townsmen that are standing around, and he says, hey, where is the cult prostitute? And they say, and we haven't. We haven't seen a cult prostitute around here. So he heads back to Judah, and he tells him that he's unsuccessful in finding her. So, so Judah says, forget it. Man, I, I'm going to keep, I'm gonna, I'll let her keep this stuff. I'll let her keep all of my identification, because if we start going door to door saying, hey, um, you know, this is what happened, and now I have a goat to give this woman who has all of my identification, what's going to happen? The scripture says that he's going to be laughed at, rightly so. And Judah hopes she just drops it wherever she is. Verse 24, the text says, about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has been immoral. Moreover, she's pregnant by immorality. Now, we, the readers, we knew that that was going to happen, right? We know what's going to happen in the story, but three months is about the time that you can't really hide things anymore. And so, so Judah finds this out. And now before we go on, this is a huge moment for Judah. You see, as the father-in-law of Tamar, he could have stood up for this vulnerable moment, this vulnerable woman, and said, let me take her in. Let me take her into my house and she can be with my family and I will provide for her because I ultimately have created this predicament that she's in. She should have been married to my thirdborn, Shayla, but instead I told her to put on the garments of widowhood. I told her to go stay with her father and I have withheld any provision that was rightfully hers. I was terrified. Hear me out, please. I was terrified of losing another son, but I was selfish in doing so. I was selfish in thinking that way. Judah could have said, listen, I am a sinner myself. I've actually engaged in a similar activity. In fact, I have been immoral. I am immoral. I'm a sinner. But Judah doesn't say that, does he? Look at the end of verse 24. This is what Judah says. He says, bring her out and let her be burned. Now, this must have happened quickly because they start to bring Tamar out and suddenly she sends word to Judah. The text says, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She said, 
please identify whose these are, the signet, the cord, and the staff. And as soon as Judah gets that word, his sin, his immorality, his lack of provision must have hit him like a ton of bricks. The weight of his sin fell on him in that moment, and perhaps the text doesn't quite bear this out, but maybe he realized that he had sinned by being immoral with his daughter-in-law. Maybe he realized that he had sinned by keeping his third son from marrying his daughter-in-law under the command of God through leveret marriage. Maybe he realized that he had sinned by thinking only of himself. Maybe he realized that he had sinned by disregarding the commandments of God for momentary pleasure. And so Judah says in verse 26, she is more righteous than I since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And then the story ends. Tamar gives birth to twins, twin boys, Zerah and Perez, Perez being the firstborn. And that's the story of Tamar. We see the plan, and now finally we see the purpose. Why is, why is the story here? God providentially rules over all things to fulfill his purposes and promises to his people. That is sure and that is certain, even in this story in Genesis chapter 38. We know that because this story is included in Matthew chapter one. This woman is producing an heir to Jesus Christ himself. Now, we always say on this earth that you can't pick your family. And there's other lines to go with it, so deal with it. So suck it up. Whatever it might be, we don't pick our family, but God can, right? God can pick his family. In fact, God does pick his family. He handpicked his family before the foundation of the world, the line in which the son Christ Jesus would be born of. So from this family, from this story, what can we as the people of God and the future children of God can learn? A few implications. First is that of marriage. Marriage is designed by God to display the love of God. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 says it is to display Christ and the church. It is for Christians, partners that understand the glories of God and are uniting to display them in this covenant partnership. And yet, in this story, we saw Judah walking into marriage with his own desires at the forefront. He walked out of what God had commanded for him and what he thought was greater, for what he thought was greater beauty and pleasure. God said, do not marry outside of your clan. Do not marry outside of your people. It's a worship issue. And, and Judah said, no, I'm gonna marry the Canaanite woman because she's beautiful and that's exactly what I want. And in doing so, Judah walked away from God's best for him. Judah's sons were also married themselves, two of their marriages ending in death due to their own wickedness. God designed marriage for his glory to be displayed, not yours. And so for the Christian this morning, how are you working to display the glories of God in your marriage? 
For those of you who would like to approach marriage, to, to get married one day, how are you working to see that you can display the glories of God in your marriage? How are you dealing with your sin today? Because it will have lasting effects in your future marriage on this earth. Whether your spouse is a Christian or not, whether she submits to your leadership of, or not, whether she respects you or not, in or out of marriage, hear this, this is for everyone, the people of God, are you quick to do what Judah did not? Speak up for others or your spouse when they are caught in sin? Or do you use a sinful moment by someone that you see caught in it to cast blame and shame? How has marriage been revealing and exposing your sin? And as it reveals and exposes your sin, what are you doing about it? Are you repenting of it? Second, we see this theme of repentance. Although the word is never used, it seems as though Tamar's outing at the end of the story is used for great good in Judah's heart. His admission that she is more righteous than he sets him on a different trajectory in his life. Up until this moment, Judah has lived absolutely as himself as the king. When faced with the competition of his brother Joseph, what does he want? He wants him gone. He wants money for his being sold to slavery. When given the opportunity to speak about his own sin and defend his daughter-in-law, what does he do? Instead of speaking up for her, instead of caring for her and providing for her, he remains silent. He doesn't speak up about his own sin. When faced with the sin of his daughter-in-law, Tamar, he wants her burned. Now when faced with his own sin, he stops idea that they're standing in front of the brother that they, that they sold off into slavery. They have no idea that their brother is of such prominent power in this country. When Joseph tells them that they are to return home, but Benjamin must stay, there Judah is. And the old pattern of his life would say that in that moment, Judah would say, Benjamin's staying here. Peace, little brother. I'm going back home to dad, and we're going we're gonna to hope that you're okay when we get back. No. Judah actually, he takes a stand forward, and he starts to talk about his brother, Benjamin. <laughs> Judah speaks up and says that he can't possibly put his dad through the agony that he has already done before. He can't possibly see that his dad would go through all of the pain of losing another child. And Judah says, I would rather stay in his place. Take, take me instead, Judah says. And now, when Judah once used to live for himself and live for his own desires, disregarding the commands of God, living only for his pleasure, he now becomes, at the end of Genesis, a, a type of Christ. And in this moment, we can see the reality of the coming Messiah pictured here, that there is one who is coming that is totally righteous, much more righteous than Tamar. In fact, there is one coming who is sinless, 
never have committed any sin. He is more righteous than them all. And he says, while dying on the cross in the place of sinful human beings, he said, I'm taking their place and I'm giving them my righteousness, although they deserved to be burned to death for all eternity. You see the type of picture that we see right here at the end of Genesis. Now, we don't see the word repentance, but certainly Judah is burying the fruit of it out. Brother or sister, are you repenting of sin? Do you see the one who is totally righteous having taken your place on the cross so that you could boldly come before the Father and repent of your sin and find full and lasting forgiveness there? If not, Repent today while it is still today. Repent and turn to Christ before it is too late. Repent, even if it costs you much. It will cost you much more in eternity. Third and finally, we see here in the story of Tamar and Judah, the providence of God. We're gonna move quickly to Judges chapter 14, and I'll read it for you, but we see Samson married Beginning in verse, verse 1 of chapter 14, it says, Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Timnah is not a good place, apparently, okay? You don't go up or down to Timnah. Don't find yourself there. But Samson did. And he came up and he told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as a wife, young men. It no longer works that way. And I promise you, if you say that to your parents, go get that woman as a wife for me, they will not do that. So go ahead and forget about that. Verse three, but his father and mother said to him, is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, again, not thinking much, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes, dad. I added that last part. It's implicit in the text that this is a bad idea to look outside of Israel for a wife. His parents are explaining this to Samson. And yet, Samson is going to get what he wants. But verse four is incredibly important to this story of Samson, and it is surely relevant for our text this morning. His father and mother, verse four, did not know that it was from the Lord. For he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Again, I'm going to say that again. In the context, Samson tells his parents, get that woman for me as a wife. Now, his parents rightly and wisely say, that's not what the Lord wants. Are you sure that there's no woman within the confines that God has given us in our people within Israel that is for you? And he says, that's not what I want. Verse four, again, his father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. Now, much like Joseph's declaration in Genesis chapter 50, where Joseph says, you meant it for evil talking to his brothers, but God meant it for good. The same must be said for Tamar and Judah in Genesis 38. Certainly sin abounds in these stories. 
And it's not something that we're to say, hey, sin abounds, so it's all good because it's going to work out in the sovereignty of God. But even so, in the midst of human sin, wickedness, deceitfulness, adultery, immorality, fornication, God is, our story in Genesis 38 ends with Tamar's labor with the twins. It was an incredibly important day for for birthright and inheritance sake to get the first child right, especially when twins were being born. And as so, uh, as soon as one of the infants puts his hand out as Tamar is giving birth, the midwife took a scarlet thread and she tied it to his hand. But then all of a sudden he pulled his hand back in and then the first brother to come out is not the one that has the scarlet thread on his hand, but it's actually Perez. And then the second is Zerah. Now, Perez is the starting point for the tribe of Judah. Back to Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. Tamar and Perez appear in the genealogy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Tamar becomes one of the five women listed in the genealogy of the Messiah. Perez becomes a grandfather of Christ. And now, as Legan Duncan writes, the Messiah of Israel the savior of the world has Canaanite blood flowing in his veins because God loves to turn that which is evil to his own purposes and bring blessings from curse and redeem that which deserves destruction and bring it into the realm of his blessing and grace. As we close this morning, I want you to hear one more time that God providentially rules over all things to fulfill his purposes and promises to his people. Let's pray. Father, we as your people here this morning, we are delighted to hear a story such as this, a story that is filled with wickedness and deceit and immorality and yet has your sovereign hand over it all. That in the midst of this very line is where your son Christ Jesus would come from. Uh, A son who was perfect, a son who was totally righteous, a son who was absolutely able to pay the sin debt for any and all who would trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And so as your children here this morning, we are grateful to be a part. Grateful to be a part of your family. That which we did not deserve to be a part of. And it's in a story like this that we remember that you providentially rule over all things to fulfill your purposes and promises to your people. God, help us. As we leave here this morning, would we remember in this season of waiting, as we remember that your son Christ Jesus is coming again, would we know that it is by Christ and Christ alone that we could ever find redemption and that it is not us who have been or will take on the penalty that we deserve because Christ indeed took it on his behalf on the cross, suffered, bled, and died so that we might have life and life eternal. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.